The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rory. Let me start with a prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear from you through your word, read and proclaimed. And uh, we just thank you again for the gift of the resurrection of Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, we are beginning a seven-part sermon series today. So if this is your first time with us, uh, you're, you're here for the beginning of something. And the, the series is called Doubting Christianity. And what we're going to be doing over these next seven weeks is we're going to be examining seven core reasons why a lot of people might struggle with the claims of Christianity. And, uh, and so we're going to be examining these things. And so want, wanna, we're going we're to join in that conversation. We want to encourage you to invite your friends to be a part of this. If you have people in your life that um, are without a church home, are new to the area, are looking for a place to be, uh, we would love to, to have them here. Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. And we start this morning in that with this uh, really examination of the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because um, to even talk about such a thing, somebody dying and then being buried and then rising from the dead is a pretty um, outlandish claim to make, isn't it? Because when people die, they don't come back to life. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, just some evidence of the resurrection. Um, but to do that, I want, to, I want to set it up, actually, by telling you a story that's a little bit sad. Um, it's actually really sad, but uh, it was a long time ago, so it's less sad. Here's the story. When I was about 10 years old, uh, I grew up in the country, and we had dogs, and our dogs were uh, never on leashes, and there were no fences. It was just... They knew where home was, and they stayed, and we fed them, and we gave them water, and they were, you know, loyal, uh, loyal. And we had this dog named Dusty, who was an Irish setter, and she was this dopey, 
kind of this mix. Maybe you have a dog like this that is the dumbest animal you've ever met and also the smartest animal you've ever met. Like dogs have this way of being able to be both at the same time. And uh, anyway, you know, animals are part of your family. And I was outside one day. Um, I forget what I was doing, but Dusty uh, got hit by a car when I was out there, and I was near her when this happened. And not only did I, I witness the accident, but she came over to me right after it happened, and she collapsed into my lap and, and died in my arms. I'm 10 years old. And it was a defining moment in my life, not just because of the loss of a, of a pet, but it was the first like, encounter with mortality that 10-year-old me had really ever had. And even then, I, I felt what I think so many people feel in the face of sudden loss or even expected loss. And it's, and it's this feeling, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today kind of hinges on this. It's the feeling that death is not the way it's supposed to be, that there's something just wrong about it. And we feel it, don't we? We feel that. We feel when we experience loss, when somebody that we love dies, when we face our own mortality, that it's not just sad, but there's something, isn't there, that says this is wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. What Dusty introduced me to that day was this concept of irreversibility. That when certain things happen, it's final. And there's no going back. And there's no undoing it. When something happens, it can't unhappen. And many of the things that we can't reverse are by definition heartbreaking things. By nature, they're heartbreaking. They're moments that place our lives like iron in a fire while the hammer of providence pounds away at our hearts, shaping us into the people that we're becoming. And I know in a room like this, we all have our own stories to tell about this, about loss or catastrophe or hurt or things that are broken happening to us, around us. And there's something in us that wants to protest and wants to object. And what I'm suggesting is that feeling of protest, defiance, is because we were made to live and not die. And that is about as fundamental a belief in Christian doctrine as there, as there is. It's that we were meant to live and not die. I remember how after we buried Dusty, I would go to her grave because I'm figuring out what it means to lose like this. And, and I would go there to see if she really died or if she just fainted and maybe she had dug herself out. And I would have these dreams. And they were really vivid dreams. She wasn't really dead. I'd be playing at the creek in the dream, and she'd just come wading through the water with that dopey smile on her face, and, and it, would be, it, would be, 
it would be right. And then I would wake up. And the reality would be that she was gone. You know what it feels like, though, to have these really hope-filled dreams? And then you wake up with the sorrow that your dream seems to be the only place that that hope is actually fulfilled. What if that hope isn't an impossible dream, but instead is actually a promised reality? What if it is the outcome of a life of faith in Christ? What if death feels like an intruder because it is? What if none of us were meant to die? What if that's the point of Easter? I imagine it was pretty dreamlike when the women arrived at the tomb that day to find that the stone had been rolled away because they were wondering how that was going to happen. And the fact that it was only these women and that they were going to tend to a corpse tells us that nobody expected a resurrection. Nobody expected a resurrection. And the fact that no one expected a resurrection shows us how veiled Jesus' disciples' view of him actually was because he foretold his death to them a number of times in very specific details at least three different times prior to the cross and they didn't understand. Why didn't they understand? Because he was telling them that he was going to die and then rise again. And we don't have categories for that. Resurrection was to them what it would be to any of us. It was inconceivable because of this irreversibility thing. Dead men don't come back to life. But what do the women see? They see an angel who Matthew's gospel tells us was dressed in lightning and he struck fear in them because that's the reaction people always have in scripture when they see an angel. And the reason is because worlds have collided. And yet they see this angel who has this message that is important enough for God himself to facilitate this meeting of worlds And what does he say to them? What's the message that he has to bring to these bewildered, confused women who are wondering if it's a dream? He says to them, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you'll see him just as he said. We have to do something, you know, we have to do something with this, right? You have to do something with the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't be neutral on this. You either believe it happened or you disbelieve it happened, but there's no neutrality. And the reason why there's no neutrality is because in a world where 100 out of 100 people die, the resurrection of one person is relevant to all of us. You can't be neutral here. This either, I guess what I'm saying is this either happened or it didn't happen. Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't rise from the dead. If he didn't, then Christians should be pitied for basing our hope on a fairy tale. But if it did happen, if it did happen, then everything we know about irreversibility Everything we know about death and mortality and eternity are back on the table. And we have to then ask, well, why did this happen? 
I want to talk about some evidence of the resurrection because that's what we're doing in this series. We're, 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 we're talking about the veracity of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to walk through this a little bit. We'll kind of put on our apologetics hats. Um, and I do this kind of as a frustrated preacher. And the reason is because there's so much I want to say about this story. There's so much I want to say about this text. And there isn't time. And so I'm having to choose what I say. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the veracity of the resurrection in keeping with the series that we're in. And just put the question to us, why would any reasonable person believe in the resurrection of the, je- in the, resurrection of the dead? Why would any reasonable person accept this? And as we move into this, I'm going to mention four, we'll call them facts, about the resurrection of Jesus As I do this, I just want to say, we live in a time, we live in a culture that says this religious stuff, you're just really having to make enormous leaps of faith to wrap your arms around this. What you really should prize over that is the empirical world of of science and data. But even in the world of science and data, there are so many leaps of faith that you have to make any worldview that you're going to embrace, whether it's one that involves a benevolent creator or it's one that says actually all of this just came out of nothing, you got to understand, right, that both of those are positions of faith. And not only are they both positions of faith, but to take the position that this is all one big cosmic accident that came from nothing and there's actually no original source, you start going down that road far enough, it starts to get pretty absurd. That this can't be nothing. This can't come from nothing. The feelings we feel for each other, the way our hearts connect, the way we're drawn to each other, the way that human beings down through time have looked into the skies and believed that there was something more and have felt small and have been moved to worship and people have been worshipers since the beginning. That can't just be one big collective mistake we've all been making forever. We're made for this. So, I want to mention four, four facts that kind of surround the resurrection of Jesus. And the first fact, and the most uh, maybe on the nose, is the fact of an empty tomb. That there was on that first Easter Sunday an, an empty tomb. And no one in the accounts of the story of the resurrection of Jesus argue this point. It wasn't that he was actually in the tomb. He wasn't. It was an empty tomb. And so we start with the fact of the empty tomb. Neither Jesus' friends nor his foes, the Jews, the Romans, nobody ever denied that the tomb was empty. And so there are are a handful of possibilities for what this means. Uh, And I'm going to give them to you. Six of them, quickly. Number one, that the women and Peter and John and the guards, they all were guarding and going to the wrong tomb. Uh, that's one, one way you could explain this away, that they went to the wrong tomb on Easter. But that, that can't be, and the reason it can't be is because there was enough opposition to Christianity that if Jesus' followers were basing their faith on a clerical error, then their opponents would have made this known. And that never happened. Also, it was Mary who was at Jesus' burial 
three days earlier, who was the first person to find the tomb empty. So she had been there. She'd been there three days before to this place where Jesus' body was placed. She saw it happen. So this is the wrong tomb. One is that Jesus' enemies stole his body, and this wouldn't have happened, and the reason it wouldn't have happened is because Jesus' enemies opposed the spread of Christianity. If they stole the body, which none of them ever claimed to have done, then what they would have done is they would have stolen it for the purpose of displaying it to prove that he was dead, and that never happened either. Three Jesus' friends stole his body. In fact, this is something that the chief priests and the Roman guards began to circulate as a story. But here's the thing about that. We have to remember the condition that his disciples were in when this happened. Jesus' disciples, after his arrest, they scattered and they were scared and they went into hiding. And the question is, could they have executed such a daring fraud in just two days, which would have included overpowering soldiers? And that wasn't the guard story. When you look back at the behavior, this is the other thing, is when you look back at the behavior of Jesus' disciples after the resurrection, what you do is you see them proclaiming Christ with boldness, and one of the things that's happening as a result of that is they're being persecuted, and many of them, most of them are being martyred. And so if Jesus' disciples stole his body and they knew it was a fraud... Why would they proclaim the risen Christ if what it was systematically doing to all of them was getting them killed? Grave robbers stole the body. We don't even need to mention this one, really, because the problem here is obvious. Grave robbers steal what's on a body, not the body itself, and the body was the only thing that was actually missing. The grave clothes and the spices were all still there. Number five, Jesus wasn't actually dead. This is called the swoon theory. It was that Jesus just passed out. He only appeared to be dead from all the trauma of the beating. But what this means is it means that Jesus went from being so depleted that trained executioners mistook him for being dead, having thrust a spear into his side, and then just in two days' time, he was strong enough to free himself from grave clothes, somehow roll a two-ton stone up a hill to rest in its saddle, and then either be stealthy enough to get around the guards without noticing or strong enough to overpower them and to do this all in three days' time after the beating that he took. The sixth option is that Jesus rose from the grave. No one on either side of the discussion ever denied that Jesus' tomb was found empty. And historian Rod Sider concluded this. He said, he said if, if the Christians and their Jewish opponents both agreed that the tomb was empty, then we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as an historical fact. But if it was the right tomb, and Jesus was really dead, and no one stole the body, yet the tomb was empty three days later, you have to ask the question, what happened to Jesus? And I would submit to you that the best answer that we have available to us at that point is something supernatural. And you may say, ah, but supernatural things don't happen. See, here's the thing about that argument. In a world where there is no God, supernatural things may not happen. 
But when the natural possibilities of something are exhausted, we have to be open to the possibility of supernatural ones. And you can't say of a creator God who created the natural world, you can't say of him, well, he can't suspend the laws that he, that he made. He can. And so we, we can't reject the notion simply on the ground that it's strange to us. Because then we end up in a circular argument that is insisting Jesus, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because people aren't raised from the dead. But if we take the story on its own terms which says in Scripture that God raised him from the dead, then we have to allow that if God raised Jesus from the dead, he's not bound by the natural laws that he authored in the first place. So he can do what he wants, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that's it. you got an empty tomb. Uh, the second fact, and these will go a little bit quicker here, is the eyewitnesses. Uh, there were a lot of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, not just to the empty tomb, but to the risen Christ. It's not just that the tomb was empty. Over 500 people... Far too many for this to have been a communal hallucination. Saw Jesus over the next 40 days before his ascension. And it wasn't just that they saw him. They interacted with him. They talked with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They agreed he wasn't a ghost. That he was a real person doing real things which required, which we, which required a real body. And though, we read, and though we read of this centuries later after the resurrection, when the Apostle Paul was writing about the resurrection, and he was talking about these eyewitnesses, he added this little statement. He says, many of whom are still alive. When he was writing, many of them were still alive, as if to say, if you doubt me, ask them, because they're still around. Here's the other thing about the eyewitnesses. They all had different experiences. While they all saw Jesus, their experiences differed greatly. There were women, there were men, there were Romans, there were Jews. Some of them knew who he was right away. Others only when they were well into a meal or a conversation. Some saw him at night, some saw him in the afternoon, some saw him in the morning. Some were alone when they saw him, others were in groups. Some rejoiced when they saw him, others were terrified when they saw him. But each, appear each appearance had its own context, but they all agreed. They all agreed that they saw Jesus and that he was risen from the grave. It was the risen Christ. And so that's another fact, is, is the fact of the eyewitnesses, that it wasn't just a handful of people that are trying to keep this together. I read this great um, quote from Chuck Colson, was talking about Watergate, and he was, he was talking about how Watergate made him a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to butcher it, but it was to the effect that... With Watergate, 12 people couldn't keep a lie going or straight for three weeks. And so it's inconceivable to him that the 12 disciples would keep a lie going and straight unto their martyrdom. Something to think about. Fact number three is uh, transform lives. Listen, you may say, oh, that's experiential. Okay but it's the experience of millions. At what point do you have to say, maybe there's something to consider here? It's not just that the tomb was empty and that there were over 500 eyewitnesses who saw, talked with, walked with, ate with, touched Jesus. It's that countless lives were changed in profound and inexplicable ways. 
And these eyewitnesses were not people who were expecting to see him alive, but were people who had reasonable obstacles to recognizing the risen Christ. I'll give you two examples. The Apostle Peter. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, we talked about this last week here, Peter disowned Jesus. He denied him. He swore that he never knew him. And while Peter was then in the process of shutting down his faith and figuring out what was going to happen next for him, Jesus appeared to him in his risen form. And he reaffirmed his call on Peter's life to be his witness throughout the world. And that's just what Peter would end up doing until, as tradition has it, he was crucified and upside down at that because, at his own request, because he felt unworthy to even die in the same manner as his Lord. After seeing the risen Christ, this courage, this fidelity, this authority came over Peter as he preached Christ to some of the most hostile and powerful people in the world. And it was a radical transformation, an about face from the man who was Jesus' best friend before the cross and then during his trial denied knowing him. The other example from Scripture is the Apostle Paul. (coughs) We have to consider him as well because unlike Peter who loved Jesus, Paul when he first met Jesus, hated him. He hated him. In fact, Paul was on this mission to destroy Christianity. He'd sought legal permission, and he'd gotten it, (coughs) to imprison and, when possible, execute Christians. And he's on his way to the city called Damascus to round up Christians for persecution there, and Jesus appears to him on the road. And Paul went from hating Jesus to repenting and then becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, preaching Christ throughout Rome, authoring about a third of the New Testament. (coughs) And he was likely martyred for preaching Christ. So Paul, who began as hostile to Christianity, also experienced a radical transformation when he met Jesus. And then lastly on this point, I would just say, these are two stories out of literally millions. And a lot of those stories are sitting in this room. I'm one of those people who the risen Christ has touched and transformed everything in my life. I'm not perfect. I'm by no means am I a perfect follower of Jesus Christ. You hang around here, I will be pretty transparent with you from this podium about my shortcomings. But I will say this, coming to faith in Christ when I was a teenager, nothing in my life has been untouched by that. Nothing. That is my hope. And I'm not alone. And it's not just a nationality of people who are transformed or a gender of people who are transformed or a particular region of the world where people were transformed. Men and women from around the globe, every tongue, tribe, and nation have come to know the risen Christ and their lives have been changed for it. The fourth fact is the fact of the 
this one should blow our minds a little bit, is the fact of the continuing church. In other words, we're proof because we're here. What a long shot. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, what are we doing and why are we still doing it? It's not just that the tomb was empty. It's not just that over 500 people saw the risen Christ before the ascension. It's not just that millions of lives were changed in the process. There's also the fact that the church, despite many attempts to destroy it, remains of every race, tribe, tongue, male, female. Christianity remains and it grows. We are proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This shouldn't be happening if this is just a made-up story. There is no corollary. There is no other story that you would look at and say, well, it's just like, no, it's not, it's not just like anything. The church was founded, and it stands or falls to this day on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Disproving the resurrection would have destroyed the church. But that never happened. And the church lives because Christ lives, not only for now, but forever. I want to land by offering something to think about. And it's what we started off talking about, this kind of inner testimony that, that I believe that we all resonate with, that death is an intruder, that there's something wrong, there's something off about it. When I told you about Dusty, I heard an audible reaction in the room. And the reaction was one of sorrow. You were sad for me, you were sad for the dog. And I bet if I pressed you, you were, you were sad because that kind of stuff happens. You empathized with the boy, losing some innocence as he stood over that grave. Why? Why do we feel the way we feel about death? Isn't there something that rises up in you that wants to shout out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he said this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Does this not apply to death itself? If we desire the end of death and all the sorrow it brings... Surely, that desire comes from somewhere. Surely, that desire comes from somewhere. And this world can't contain it because this is a world where things die. If we were meant to live and not die, what if? It's the message of Easter, of Christ's resurrection. That's the message precisely is, yes, you were meant to live and not die, and that forever. We were meant to live forever. We were meant to live in face-to-face -face relationship with the maker and lover of our souls. We were meant to live in eternal peace with our creator. And that longing in us remains. And this is precisely what Christ accomplished for us through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. He gives us life and that eternal I want to invite you to come back for the next seven weeks of the series. Invite your friends. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about the exclusivity of Christianity. We're going to talk about 
truth and where truth comes from, the authority of Scripture. Why would anybody believe a book that old? We're going to talk about injustice in the world, injustice that's come from Christians throughout history. We're going to talk about hell and the wrath of God. And we're going to take an honest look at these issues. And I look forward to us digging into those things together here in this room, 930s, Sunday mornings. Um, There's so many legitimate questions that we could take up as we explore the veracity of Christianity. And I commit to dealing with these issues honestly. I will, I will be as honest and transparent as I know how to be, and I will take these questions seriously, theologically, historically, and intellectually. Here's something I found as you're thinking about inviting people to come. I found that when people want to discuss Christianity, typically, they're not hostile. They're not looking to ridicule. They're not looking to take apart Christian belief. They're wanting to understand it. And you have to respect that because some of the claims that Christians make are complicated and to many ears absurd, this idea of a resurrection. So, And I want to honor that. I want to honor where people are in the process of coming to faith and exploring the claims of Christianity. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to think and we're going to learn together, and I can't wait. Until then, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power at work in the lives of those who believe. Jesus Christ is risen. He has triumphed over death. And I put the question to you, do you believe this? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the resurrection. Not just that his resurrection is a tale of him triumphing over evil and over attempts to destroy him, but that his resurrection was in our place when our faith is in him, that our life is hidden in him, that he took our sin and that he died in our place and that he defeated the power of death for us. And when he rose from the grave, he brings us into that life, into that security of knowing that nothing will ever be able to destroy us. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for Easter, for the celebration as we gather here in this place to remember and to proclaim. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory, amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.